0: to do is that, you know, as a fund manager, as the founder of that fund, you're running the game clock, you're running the game. So the moment that you say, hey, I'm fundraising, and you give any signal of that to the outside world, which includes these collaborative conversations, the clock has started.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, where we engage in deep conversations at the intersection of technology, business, investing, philosophy, and psychology. Today's guest is Mia Nguyen. She's an operating principal at Four Cities Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm based in Boston, where she's focused on investment management, investor relations, and strategy. Building a venture fund is challenging, and it's even harder even when you're doing it for the first time. In this episode, we're going to dig deep into strategies on how emerging fund managers can build a venture fund, what tricks they can use to increase their chances of success, what tools to use to manage your investors, the key differences between warm referrals and cold outreach, and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears, and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Mia Newen. In case anyone obviously doesn't know about you, do you want to just give a quick background on, you know, what you're up to and and who you are and a little bit about what uh, what you're doing?
0: Yeah, happy to. So my um, name I mean, my name is Mia. I'm an operating principal and first full time team member at Four Cities. Capital were an early stage firm investing in seed series A startups. Prior to that, I was chief of staff to a Boston based VC, the one of the co-founding partners helping with portfolio management, investor relations and fundraising. And it was at that firm that I really started my career in venture, um, with not only that role, but various internships on the, you know, investment and platform teams. So super excited to have started my early career in venture and, you know, learn along the way.
1: It's cool. I think there's definitely a lot of stuff to, to sort of do in venture. And you are, you wrote an, a medium article that was kind of interesting. It, it really stuck out to me and I think it got a lot of uh, interest on social and, and I think that's, it was all, all about fundraising for a fund. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's very different from fundraising for a company. I think there's a few similar similarities here and there, but you know, it would be interesting to learn a bit more about why you decided to write that Medium article. And what was your purpose? Why, why did you do it? What was the incentive? What was uh, the instigator in in writing something like that? Because I thought it was very useful. I think there's a lot of people um, that found that useful, but do you want to just sort of explain uh, what the article the series of articles were about on Medium? And I'll link that in the description notes below, um, but it would be good to sort of get your story behind uh, why you decided to write that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, one of the great outcomes of that article was getting to meet you and being able to do this podcast. So it has introduced me to a lot of great people. Um, yourself included, but, you know, just to up level share a bit about the series. I'm writing a blog post series on fundraising as an emerging manager, um, broken down into a few separate blog posts. The two that have been published to date is all about how to source and connect with LPs. The second is managing a pipeline of your LPs. The third that is up and coming is what materials to prepare for your LPs. And then throughout this series, you know, speaking with a few LPs themselves to do LP spotlights, as I'm calling them, to really bring in the second perspective of the LP, um, given that my perspective and the one shared to date are from the VC side. So that's at a high level what the blog series is about. And, you know, to answer the question of what prompted me to write this series, the short answer is that this series is an evolution of my chicken scratch notes of one-on-one coffee chats that I've had with various emerging managers by simply reaching out to them and, you know, being very transparent that I have no idea what I'm doing. Here are all my questions. Can you help me? And so, like I said, fundraising for a venture fund was, you know, something that I knew very little about, but I was given the opportunity to, you know, play a bit pr- pretty large role in it in my last fund. Um, and being so early in my, on in my career, you know, I was fine saying I don't know what I don't know. And I've had the opportunity to work closely with those who have and then also develop a network and community of others who have successfully raised their funds. So reached into my network, reached into friends of friends um, and, you know, asked for these coffee chats that then evolved to wanting to write this series and kind of publish and promote the tips that they were sharing with me. And, you know, by no means gatekeep those tips, but, you know, amplify them to the world so we can all learn together in the open
1: yeah, I think that article really stuck out because it really you really broke down uh, exactly what that process looks like. And so, for anyone who doesn't understand, or maybe who's someone who's just like raising their first fund, uh, becoming thinking about going into VC and learning about the fundraising process, uh, but also those who are sort of just VC enthusiasts, they want to say, okay, how does like a Sequoia becomes Sequoia, how do you actually raise money to become uh, a fully fledged fund that you can start to invest in early stage companies and, and so on and so forth. Do you want to quickly just break down uh, what's that fundraising process, everything from like sourcing the LPs, you know, getting connected to the right LPs, maintaining those LPs and those connections, you know, it would be good to sort of take Sort of a, a high level snapshot of the medium article you wrote and sort of explain that uh, in this episode about how you would go about if you were just starting out for the first time and what really are those key, um, you know, insights that you need to gain in order to start thinking about fundraising the proper way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And we could spend this podcast and many others talking about the entire process. So I'll try to do the like TLD of of the posts that I've uh, published today. But I think prior to going to the posts, one thing that fund managers always shared with me prior to the questions I asked with them was, you know, what, 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 let's, I'll answer your questions, Mia, but let's focus on like what I did before I even went out to go to market before I even went out to go start asking people for money. And so I think I'll start there and then I'll give the kind of snapshots of the posts that I've published today, if that works for you. Um, But, you know, on the, on the, you know, you're a first-time fund manager. You're going out to market. What do you do before you start fundraising? There's a whole checklist, um, and I think it's important that we get transparent about it. And so, you know, to summarize that into, like, I'd say four points, you know, the first and foremost is that I think it's really important to understand the concept of venture math and that it's very hard to, um, you know, generate these outside returns that are venture worthy and would excite LPs and understand that to start a venture fund and have a successful one, it takes a lot of discipline and honestly, a little luck to be successful. And so while many of us know this, Barry, you included prior to starting Metagrow Ventures, I'm sure, you know, it's a common response when I ask emerging, emerging managers, what was your biggest doubt or biggest fear when you were starting a venture fund? They were like the math. It's very hard to be successful. I need to have a lot of at-bats. I need to hit home runs just to, just to generate a 1x on the front, let alone a 3, 5, 7x like I'm promising prospective LP. So I think just laying out the foundation that of venture math and getting familiar with the concept is really important prior to going out to market because that's what you're pitching you're going to be able to do. And then the second fund is, you know, spending a lot of time crafting a differentiated story and building a financial model alongside that story. So, you know, first time fund managers need to spend a lot of time explaining to LPs what their investment strategy is, why it's unique, why they're the best individual to execute it. And then the financial model needs to go alongside that to outline how said strategy will actually drive outside returns for the LPs that they're pitching. So, for example, you know, your financial model should include how many investments will you invest out of your fund? What's your average check size? What are you reserving for follow-on capital? How are you thinking about recycling capital versus distributing it upon realized investments and so forth? And so I think if you skip that step or any of these steps that I'm about to share, You'll be going, you'll be going out to market before you're tr- truly ready and before you truly know yourself. And in the spirit of knowing yourself, it's also very important to know your prospective LP archetype, which leads me to my third point, which is you need to spend time building your ideal LP archetype, very similar to how founders of startups build their ICP, their ideal customer profile. What's your ideal LP profile? You know, LPs vary from high net with individuals to family offices to fund funds institutional endowments, sovereign wealth funds, and so forth. You know, you're fund one. Are you going to go out and target the sovereign wealth funds of the world? Likely not, but kudos if you do. Um, and so I think it's important to understand who are you targeting and why. Uh, are you the fund manager that is going to be the bridge for high net with individuals who are just starting to dip their toes into venture capital as an asset class? And are you ready to bring the level of education likely required to get those LPs comfortable to invest? Or are you the LP that's going to help an endowment just building out their foundation for a VC and be their first VC investment. Or are you going to go to a family office who is, you know, well-known with VC, have a few investments and some co-investors that you've been, you know, looking at deal flows with, et cetera, and, you know, go that route. So I think it's really important to spend time knowing who you want to raise money from and why. And that'll result in a very narrow and targeted outreach that you can do. And then the fourth and final piece, um, and this kind of goes into right when you step your toes into the market. But before you go out to market and start pitching, start asking for money, you know, I think it's, I think it's a very tactical and strategic way um, that you can go about it. And instead of going out and asking for money right away, you can go out and ask to collaborate with prospective LPs. And so this is, you know, the style of approaching an initial conversation from a place of wanting to get feedback, as opposed to wanting to ask for money. And You know, arguably, it's still just as difficult to ask. You're asking someone actually for the most precious asset, which is their time, let alone their money. And so you're asking for 30 minutes or an hour to sit down, talk through your investment strategy, see if it resonates with them, see if, you know, the language can you can tweak the language at all to, you know, make the message come across clear, you know, get a gut check on the materials that you've prepared, ask them if they know anyone else that you should talk to, to collaborate with, all with the intention that they feel like they're part of your journey, where if and when it makes sense, they might lean in and want to invest as well. Again, not with a direct ask because no one likes to be sold to, although at the end of the day, you're always selling, but from a more collaborative standpoint, if that makes sense.
1: So how how long, like if you're someone who wants to like in the back of your mind is like look i, I really want to work with this lp but i don't want to be too needy and ask them straight, uh, very straight up when is that right time because if you're trying to collaborate with them i think that's really great and you want to make sure that to become more active than passive as an mm-hmm. lp but when is at that time is it like you know when is it is it an inexact science when you figure out okay maybe it feels right that i should Now maybe ask him or her to sort of thinking about investing in the fund, or you know, do you just straight up say it and then look, you know, after a couple weeks, uh, after two weeks, what is the strategy there?
0: Yeah. It's a, it's the magic question. I wish it was an easy answer. Like you talk to someone three times and then after three times, you know, you can ask them for their money. Um, you know, it's not, it's not black or white. It's clear as mud, in fact. So I think, but I think it's, it's a difficult one to address, but you, you bring up a good theme, which is, you know, how do you generate momentum while fundraising? How can you continue on conversations while not feeling like a buzzy bee at the back of the LPs, constantly following up with them. And you perhaps sometimes getting limited response, which is going to happen to the best of us. So I think, I think what's important to do is that, you know, as a fund manager, as the founder of that fund, you're running the game clock, you're running the game. So the moment that you say, Hey, I'm fundraising and you give any signal of that to the outside world, which includes these collaborative conversations, the clock has started. And so you're the coach, you're the player, you determine how long you want to run that clock for. Um, we can talk about like average times that it raise, takes to raise a fund. And of course, that's only lengthening now due to the market conditions. But um, yeah, I wish I had a clear answer for you. But unfortunately, it's kind of a sense and feel and every individual relationship is different. But I can say that if you clearly run the clock, with each of your LPs, as soon as one dips in, you can kind of stop this feeling of a snowball, and then the momentum will carry other LPs forward. And you can kind of nudge folks along by saying, you know, I want to keep this friends and family, close friends. Here's the update on how, you know, how much we've closed to date. Would love to include you in that group. Are you interested? You know, month later or so, they haven't responded. Hey. Uh, understand that, you know, all, all, we're all busy, but just want to check in, haven't heard from you for a while, going to assume that you're not interested in the opportunity and respectively take you off the list to be respectful to both of our times. Um, you know, let me know if something changes on your end and hope of them following up. But like I said, it's important to follow up with LPs, but you, you don't want to chase at a detriment of your own time, if that makes sense.
1: No, that makes complete sense. And I, I agree with you. It's it's always tough to figure out because every LP is different. It's not like you can't just treat them all the same and just send a blanket email to all the LPs within your network. Everyone has different needs. Everyone figures out what their sort of sweet spot is. So you really have to treat every LP like as the only specific LP that you're really focused on. And that yeah. obviously can be time-consuming because if you're dealing with potentially 100 LPs, then, you know, you're going to have to really maintain those strong relationships. And I think that ties in with the momentum side of things as well, because I think with the momentum, you really have to really create that sense of like urgency, as you mentioned, and that FOMO effect, but I like the way that you said that you have to really put a deadline on it or a time frame to say, because it becomes more open and open, then you're just giving them the ability to sort of come in when they need to. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't bode well for both sides. So I think time frame, urgency, um, and making sure that there's some level of commitment there, whether it be soft, you know, at least you have something verbal. Is that is that important to get a soft commitment from them?
0: I think yes and no. Um, I think people indicate soft commitments in different ways. I wouldn't be turned off if you didn't get a soft commitment of like, I'm interested in 100K or 5 million with a dollar amount associated to it. However, I think that you can see soft commitments by them offering to continue to spend time with you. Or to by introducing you to some of their friends or people that they know to have conversations with, so you can get other people's feedback. I think soft soft interest can be shown in different ways outside of a dollar commitment. And so I think using your best best judgment to you know nail on that. And then they just going back to another thing that you said about you know fundraising. Fundraising can take a lot of time, and if you have a hundred or so LPs in the pipeline, you know what's what's someone to do. Uh, with only 24 hours a day and how can they manage that all? And I think that goes back to the importance of having an ICP, an ideal customer profile for your LP. So let's make the analogy, which many do, that fundraising is a lot like sales. And you're selling at the same time. You're trying to get new leads. You're like a BDR, but you're also an account manager. You're trying to keep your existing LPs or those further along in the pipe very happy and very and make the, make the experience feel very personalized. And so if you have 100 LPs in the pipeline, or well, the more you have, the harder it gets. And so that's why I think it's so important to spend the time up front to craft who are you truly targeting and who will resonate most with your pitch. And so I'm, I'm over, um, I'm double clicking on this or clicking on it a few times because I think the importance of spending the time up front to understand what your story is and who it'll resonate with um, will only give, you know, great benefits later on when you're you're with a specific curated list of lps that you can truly personalize each and every experience and you're not overextended with your bandwidth
1: yeah no i agree um you know there's there's one thing where you're sort of just um sp- spraying and praying and yeah. you're trying to contact everyone which can work in many cases Of obviously if you have a very very strong track record um mm-hmm. that work but especially if you are starting out as a fund manager and you don't really have a strong track record behind you you really need to cater your mandate and your thesis to specific LPs as you mentioned and I, I guess that sort of segues into the next question is you know how, how do you go about that like is it you know you mentioned reaching out to LPs is always uh, an activity an exercise in and of itself
0: mm-hmm. now
1: there's also there's warm connections and there's cold connections mm-hmm. so it would be interesting to get your thoughts about sort of when you should approach on both sides. Some some uh, fund managers that I engage with, they never touch uh, cold uh, contacts because it's just, it leads to a dead end. On the other side, there's always that possibility, um, especially again, if you have a track record, I think it does uh, bode well. But as just going back to the perspective of an emerging fund manager, what is sort of a, a good approach to interacting with, LPs, both warm and cold, if, if any?
0: So I think my advice there would be to prioritize and almost exhaust your warm connections prior to going to cold connections. Not that the latter can't be fruitful and we'll discuss that, but I think um, to best manage your time and your energy, prioritizing, prioritizing warm connections is important. And so I think the process of leveraging those warm connections is You know, we can talk through it in a few steps, but I think that, you know, first identify, you know, who you might know in the industry that is a venture capital, you know, entrepreneurs within your portfolio, co-investors that you've done deals with, uh, friends who are at other funds and so forth. And then take a look at various funds if they're at a VC, take a look at, you know, have they closed a fund in the last 18 months? If so, you know, they probably have advice on the overall fundraising strategy. So, you know, perhaps grab a coffee and chit-chat with them. And, again, at least my style is that, you know, don't come so direct with your ass to ask for an introduction to their LPs because, again, you know, there can be many layers to this dynamic. You don't want to come across as potentially a competitive investment to them and, you know, lose a great co-investor relationship. And so I think approaching it as another learning opportunity of, hey, you were just in the market fundraising, you know, I'm about to go out to market. What advice do you have? Oh, you just closed a fund in the last 12 months. Are there any LPs that, you know, perhaps you think would resonate with our story as well? And so I think where you can do that was, is with co-investors, um, but specifically lead in- investors who follow on in your portfolio companies. So say you invest specifically in seed stage companies. Look at the companies who have, you know, your portfolio companies who have graduated on to Series A, what investors led this Series A? Have you developed a relationship with them? Can you proactively develop a relationship with them in hopes of one day, you know, as you approach going out to market saying, hey, you know, we've you know, we fed you um, or you've followed on with X percentage of our portfolio companies. Be super neat to, you know, kind of develop this cedar seed feeder relationship are any of your LPs perhaps interested in, you know, getting to know a seed stage manager as they focus and prioritize you for the Series A opportunities. And so I think you can play it that way. Um, And that's one path to a warm connection. Others include, like I said, portfolio companies. So entrepreneurs in your portfolio who might be working with other venture funds, you know, asking them for introductions to other managers that they've really enjoyed working with and then playing that same route uh, with said managers in hope of getting an introduction to um, their LP base as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's always so many strategies and I I agree with all of what you just said. And (laughs) I think the one thing is doing the work, right. And it's so easy to sort of plan it out on paper, but then you have to realize how to sort of manage those relationships, Mm -hmm. reaching out to the right people. And it does get old sometimes. And I I empathize with a lot of fund managers out there. But once you get traction though, it is fun because you start to realize that, well, this is actually starting to work now. There's a lot of um, interested people who want to learn more about our mandate. And this is going to make a huge difference to what we're building as a fund, but also the impact that we can have on the server investors as as on the founders that we work with as well. Uh, One thing that I've noticed that can be sometimes troublesome for managers is maintaining a very big list of LPs. They use spreadsheets. They use probably, I don't know, Airtable or Notion or some sort of CRM system um, on their side. Some even probably, I don't know, do it on paper. That might be a thing. That I'm sure that happened, um, you know, decades ago. So, what's the best approach, if there is any, about sort of keeping uh, a, a, an organized list of LPs in your network? You know, what tools should you use? Mm-hmm. How should you go about that? What, what are some of your recommendations?
0: Yeah. Well, you named a few tools there. There's tools like. Um, and there's tools like a- Airtable, monday.com, there's Gmail extension, there's the good old pen and paper. Um, but what I'll recommend, and I'm extremely biased for recommending this because I'm a f- fan favorite customer of theirs, is there's a tool called Affinity. It's actually a startup itself. I think they just closed their Series A, Series C, excuse me, you know, a few years back. But um, they are dedicated custom CRM specifically for VCs. And so not only can you use it for fundraising support and limited partner support, but you can also use it to manage your deal flow and portfolio companies as well. Um, For this conversation and this use case, um, I actually use them at my prior fund for, um, well, for all things, but what I was in what I was managing was the LP relationship side of thing. And so I talk about this in my second blog post, if we can link it in the chat, and it provides some screenshot examples. But what was really helpful for me though was to actually build out a Kanban board with various steps, various pipeline stages. Um in the blog again, it shows examples of live stages that you can have in your pipeline uh, with specific definitions of what needs to be true for an LP opportunity to be in said stage, what the gate is to go into the next stage. And I think having a very a very clear process that is still flexible for unique cases, because like we both agree on, each LP is, you know, different in their diligence and difference in their style. But I think an overall structured process can be very helpful because it keeps you organized. Because you're going to be managing a lot, it's fundraising, sales. It's a full-time job. Fund managers are doing this in addition to the day job of investing, which is what they're probably likely more passionate about. So you have to stay organized and stay disciplined to the best of your ability to keep the clock moving as you run the clock. And so, Affinity is one of those tools that you can use to do that, in addition to any other uh, CRM tools as well.
1: Yeah, I think the the managing side is key. I think from my experience as well. You know, I started out sort of just doing on Google spreadsheets. And then I realized that it was, you know, untenable. So I felt that, you know, having a structure in place right from the beginning definitely helps in yeah. sort of building out, especially when, you know, 10 LPs or whatever, it may be, kind of seems kind of easy, but with everything, if you have processes and structure around you, um, as that, as you start to scale and you get more LPs coming into your network, then, things like Affinity or Airtable or any, all of these other tools are great for that because you really are defining um, uh, some sort of foundation for that. So whenever you contact an LP or an LP reaches out to you, you go straight to the table or to the CRM and then you put the details in, you put down the type of engagement you've had and then that's it. And as long as you're consistent and disciplined about that approach, mm-hmm. then I think everything will fall into place and then you can easily go back Retrospectively and, and look at, you know, who are you engaged with? Who haven't you engaged with in such a long time that you need to reach out again? Right. And so I think that's sort of uh, advice from both of us about, you know, if you are uh, an emerging fund manager to really thinking about having good core foundational processes right from the beginning, uh, because it can get pretty ugly very quickly if you don't manage that. Um, yeah, that's know, great. I think. Yeah. yeah, I know. So I think the, entire fundraising process is really interesting in and of itself so mm-hmm. you know i'd like to understand a little bit about sort of the differences per though because i'm sure there's a lot of founders listening to this as well they're probably into learning a bit more about oh that's how vc raises their money uh, but <laughs> how does it relate to fundraising for a company um, and you know are there similarities are there differences what, what's the difference between the two
0: um, so I'd be really curious if there are startup founders listening to this, they want to leave a comment or follow up afterwards with either Barry or myself, would love to hear their feedback on what the differences they are or similarities and differences that they're observing. But you know, from speaking with portfolio of companies and speaking with friends who are founders, I think my hypothesis that, you know, some similarities, there are a lot of similarities and those include, you know, the The importance of leveraging your personal network for first meetings. We just talked about the importance of warm connections and how you can go about that as a fund manager. And there's very similar routes as a founder looking to other founders for VC introductions. I think the second similarity is that, you know, there's this big necessity to prepare a strong pitch as to why your venture is unique and why you're the right one to build it. Very similar to VCs going out to LPs in a crowded marketplace of, I'm another seed stage manager, but oh no, wait, I'm different than everyone else because of this. And here's why I'm the best to do it. And so, you know, there's that pick the best jockey analogy that's applicable to both startups raising from VCs and VCs raising from LPs. And then I think the third similarity is that this, this, this is with the exception of first time managers, but more so emerging managers. There's a likelihood that you'll rely heavily on your existing investors or your board members to help you raise your next fund. And so. Um, if you're, you know, at a startup, you might be, you know, relying heavily on your inner circle of investors to make introductions to new investors, as they've been, you know, pleased with your progress to date. And I've seen similar trends in the VC world as well. Um, VCs, many VCs have what is called an LPAC, a Limited Partner Advisory Committee, which is an inner circle, if we want to call it that, an inner circle of existing LPs that they rely on specifically for board advice. And so, whether they're on the LPAC or they're, you know, a close colleague or friend within the limited partner group you know relying on that inner circle to help uh, give feedback and provide introductions as you go out to market again and then you know i think the similarity if you're hearing a consistent theme here is that the overall fundraising process is quite similar you have your first meeting you have you, you have your first meeting you share some materials you open up the data room you have your diligence you complete your reference calls and you hope to close and so that overall sales process is very similar from startups to VCs, to VCs, to LPs, you know, the materials that you're sharing, the metrics that you're measured on might vary and, you know, the investor base varies, but the overall theme is the same. And so I've had a lot of fun, um, you know, raising funds in tandem when, uh, when, when startups are pitching us for investments, you know, the parallels are just, you know, uh, uh, quite clear sometimes.
1: I think there's, you know, there's definitely a lot of similarities there, and I, I agree. I and mean, you know, I've, I've raised funds for companies in the past, and you know, it's definitely very um, similar in the sense that you do have to have a pitch, you have to have your own mandate, and your mandate is effectively your product. Your so you know, what are you building that's going to solve the problem? Um, I think the difference will probably would be you know going uh, to. different respective parties you probably wouldn't be going to into institutional funds directly unless you have those strong relationships uh to raise money you would be going to a vc and then then the vc would get the money from the institutionals or from them to to fundraise that uh that round so i think it's the the party that you go to that will be the biggest difference that will be that will fund the round at the end of the day and i think for a lot of founders um that's kind of Interesting information, I would say. I think there's a lot of founders who are still unbeknownst to the idea of look. I need to only raise. I need to raise from VC, but how does VC get their money? Um, and so I think it's a very dynamic environment. You know, even I would say founders can become LPs in funds, especially if you have a strong uh, connection to a founder that you've invested in the past, and they've done a pretty good exit. Uh, a, a bit of allocation from the L, uh, from the founder itself would. Go a long way into uh, as an LP into a fund because they are sort of reciprocating, and they you know you've invested and you believed in them as a founder as a fund, but now the fund the founder has done well and got an exit, and then sort of repatriating that back into uh, to the fund. So it's very bi-directional. It can get very very tricky. Uh, but it's also nice that you build a strong network of people around you as well. And I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of players in the game, but it's yeah. very con- interconnected. And you shared the example of you know, founders themselves being able to engage and invest in VC funds if they're financially able to, but it goes both ways on the LP side as well. On the LP landscape, we're seeing a lot of more LPs do direct investments into startups themselves, whether it's through an existing manager that has a relationship or via a prospective manager as a way to build a relationship with them and complete due diligence. You know, um, there's a lot of players and there's a lot of interconnectivity, like I said.
1: I think that's exactly right. Before we sort of get into sort of four cities, because I do want to learn more a bit about what you're mm-hmm. doing there. I want to quickly just go back to the notion of connecting with the LPs. And you mentioned sovereign wealth funds. You mentioned, we, we just spoke about institutional. And there's also, you know, the a class of like high net worth individuals or people who um know who are able to become accredited and invest in and in funds now i guess the question is what should be your archetype lp if you are an emerging fund manager you know i I probably already know the answer to this but it would be great to sort of see you know the perspectives but also help people and, and and sort of emerging fund managers themselves learn a bit about like where should i spend my energy um, because I think going to the wrong LPs is the, f- the the wrong way to go about it. So, what would be the type of LPs you would target? Um, you know, as you are raising your first time fund.
0: Yeah, well, it's a really good question. It was one I was very curious about as well. So much so that I actually completed my senior capstone on this very topic while a senior at university. Um, and the output of that capstone was that it's primarily high net with individuals and family offices that invest in first-time funds and emerging managers. Now that was the output of my capstone from research on PitchBook and Prequin and lots of data reports. But as I've now started having coffee chats with emerging managers and first-time fund managers, I think I put an asterisk by that answer. Well, it is primarily high net with individuals and family offices who have the risk appetite to invest in a Manager who is early on in their fund life cycle due to a personal relationship. There are many instances where, um, where there are nuances where a fund manager could be spitting out of another fund where they were a GP for say, let's, let's say a decade and they built out a strong track record for themselves and they developed relationships with LPs and that other fund and they had decided to go and spin out and start their own fund. And we see this a lot, you know, experienced managers spin off and start a solo GP fund. Well, that manager who've developed relationships with LPs at that prior fund who, you know, has a strong track record, who has gotten to know LPs over numerous fund cycles while there, might bring that relationship over to its new fund. And so I think that could be an exception when institutional LP comes into, comes into the conversation for a first-timer emerging fund manager. Um, You know, as I complete these LP spotlights and I'll link them back as they're posted, I've spoken with two LPs, one which is an institutional LP based in Boston. They uh, back first time fund managers. In that same example, spinning off from an existing manager and they have developed a relationship like and think they're targeting a new strategy that fits well into the portfolio construction. Um, Another LP I've just recently spoke with is actually a fund of funds, and they have a really interesting portfolio construction where they dedicate, let's say, 10% of the overall uh, fund size specifically to what they call nano funds, which are small emerging managers um, with the whole thesis that this c- category of first time and new managers is being overlooked by institutional LPs due to the nature of the smaller fund size, when in reality, this can be a really great, um, you know, source of talent and new capital being deployed into startups that perhaps, you know, are being overlooked. And so while While my thesis output was high net with individuals and family offices, which I still do believe is the case, I think I would add that asterisk now that it does depend where the manager is coming from.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's definitely, again, I think every GP or potential emerging fund manager is unique. And and I think we want to just sort of make it very clear that if you are an emerging fund manager, it doesn't necessarily mean you're running your fund for the very first time. Uh, you know you have come from a it may be the case that you've come from a previous fund um, and you've done work uh, work there but you have these very very strong relationships around you and those relationships will then bolster you to really develop the fund that you want to create on a on your level and and work with your a new fund in that respect so I think that's that was good to sort of learn a bit more about um, how to reach out to the right people in the right capacity as well.
0: Yeah. And I think on your point with emerging managers, like the definition of emerging managers that you're, investing out of your third fund or fewer. So you're either investing out of your first, second, or third fund. And why it's deemed as an emerging manager is that if you think about it, the average life cycle of a VC fund is 10 years. Say your vintage fund is 2020 for fund one, you're out you know, deploying capital for the next 18 to 24 months before you dip into your reserves and you raise fund two. Then the same cycle repeats for fund three. And when you raise fund three, um, say you know, you have another 18 to 24 months of deploying capital, then you go out to fund four, that's when you come out of this category as an emerging manager, Well, you're still technically within the first 10 years of the fund cycle for the first fund. And so why that's important to define is that with that average life cycle, the first fund being 10 years, you know, there's this you know, there's not this impeding expectation from LPs that you have distributions within that first 10 years. You know, they'll slowly trickle in five, seven years in, and sooner if, you know, you you hit a home run and you're doing well for yourself. But that's why they're called emerging managers because, you know, you're, you're emerging, you're still playing the game, you're getting settled, and you're early in your career. Um, so I think that's the clear differentiation to be made there.
1: Yep, well said. Let's quickly go into uh four cities you mentioned that at the mm-hmm. beginning of the of the of the conversation tell us about four cities where what's this what's the mandate what's the story behind the firm and you know we'd love for people to sort of learn a bit more about uh what you're doing uh some of the companies you know you're working with at the moment and yeah we can go from there
0: yeah definitely well so four cities i joined the firm about gosh 10 months ago now and um and, you know, it was founded back in 2015, um, founded by founders and operators themselves who have remained building their, their endeavors full-time since starting Four Cities Capital. So that's to say that the team composition of Four Cities is quite unique. We're both general partners are part-time, and um, we also have a part-time fund advisor, and then there's myself, who's full-time on the fund. So we're a small but mighty crew over here, um, but the whole thesis was that, you know, There's that theory that it takes a great player in order to be able to coach the game. And these GPs who I'm able to have the opportunity to work alongside you know, are great coaches, but they're not done playing the game yet. They still want to build, they still want to operate. And so they've built Four Cities alongside them in their career, grown alongside it, and have been investing in other entrepreneurs while still building and operating themselves. And I think that's what really excited me to join Four Cities is that model of founders and builders, investing in founders and builders. And I thought, you know, many VCs say that, they, they have been operators before and they relate to your experience. But was that five years ago? Was that 10 years ago? Or was that literally the same day that they call you? Because for these GPs, it is. And so that's what excited me about Four Cities.
1: Yeah, us, Four Cities is interesting because it is, you know, managed by two part-time GPs that are doing company building on the side. Um, and they're sort of like deep operators and they've been able to sort of manage between and, and do a balancing act between both investors, but then also come, um, operators as well. And I think that's important. Um, not in the, sense, in the sense of the balancing act, but the fact that a lot of these, um, GPs at forces are operators themselves. They've worked at companies, so they understand uh, a lot about, you know, how to work with founders. And, you know, I think founder friendly can sound a bit cliche sometimes, but, you know, especially if you are, going to, uh, to work with a VC, you know, you definitely want to make sure they understand the craft um, of building a company. It's very, very tough. Um, mm-hmm. So we definitely empathize with the founders from that respect. And, you know, I think from from our side, yeah, I think Metagrove once sort of we're sort of community driven, we have a lot of people that are operators, me by myself an operator as well, you know, so we definitely understand the highs and lows of mm-hmm. uh, of, of building um, really great companies. And I think that sort of leads into sort of the, the path, the, the question about four cities that, you know, you join them because you believed in their mission. And so what's sort of keeping you busy day to day now um, at four cities, are you sort of uh, mostly focused on investor relations and and where do you want to go as well, um, you know, in four cities and beyond as well? Yeah, it's
0: a, yeah, it's a good question. Um Well, you know, I started talking about what excited me about four cities, um, specifically, you know, their approach to founders and how they live and breathe what they say. Um, but what also excited me is that despite being founded in, you know, 2015, almost 10 years ago now, um, and building a great tracker, track record throughout the year, you know, there was a big opportunity at Four Cities to help build the foundation of the firm structure. And so, um, coming from my previous role where the opportunity to shadow one of the co-founding partners of the firm and see what it was like to manage and lead a venture fund, you know, Four Cities gives me opportunity to actually execute and do that. And so when I joined Four Cities, I saw a pretty much blank sheet of paper. In terms of the operations and structure of the fund and the opportunity to help, you know, build that foundation and also shift strategy as we look towards this fund and, you know, future funds and being able to play and have a big voice in that. And so that's what excited me to join four cities. Um, you know in terms of day-to-day when there's only four team members and one of those folks are full-time you wear, you're doing a little bit of everything wearing many hats and that's one of the reasons I enjoyed so much so you know I you know some days I might be handling LP communications the others I might be thinking about you know portfolio construction and what you know when our next capital call is going to be other times I might be speaking with a few portfolio companies helping them hire you know the next key hires that they shared in their monthly investor update and so forth um, Other days I'm working on the blog, which I'm super happy to be doing. So it's a, it's a big bundle of things and that's, you know, how I prefer to spend my time jumping between many different tasks. Um, And when I think about what I want to do next, you know, I want to help keep growing for cities. Like I said, we're with, um, you know, our fifth fund in, but there's a lot of blank space. that's still yet to grow. And I think all team members ambitions are high and we're just ready to keep working and keep executing at it.
1: Yeah. That sounds cool. I think that, I do want to get into sort of why you decided to get into to, to VC. I think this is going to help a lot of other people sort of, um, especially those out of college or those who are sort of interested in building companies and helping with founders, mm-hmm. um, what that looks like. But sort of before we get into that, you want just, do you want to just clarify the mandate for Four Cities? Does it have a mandate, you know, um, and, and how do they, how do founders sort of reach out to Four Cities if they want to connect with you?
0: Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. So our overall thesis with generalist investors, we write 100 K to 300 K checks into seed series a startups primarily in the United States, but we have some investments abroad. Uh, best way to reach out to us is you can go to our website. We have an email contact there. I'll also share my personal email, my personal work email um, with Barry. So you can include in any, you know, promotions of this podcast, but um, yeah, that's a little bit about how you can get in touch with us and what we look at. Cool.
1: uh. Yeah. So let's quickly get into, I think, sort of as we sort of tail off, because I think this is going to be interesting for a lot of um, really budding uh, venture capitalists out there, but also founders and and people, enthusiasts who want to learn more about getting into VC. I've spoken to a lot of people at university and college who are kind of interested. They don't know too much about it. I guess what they've heard is sort of just re- subscribing to newsletters, reading blogs from a lot of the, the VC firms sort of around. Mm-hmm. But what was your story? How did you sort of get into, you know, VC? Did, you know, if it was ever the first option, uh, you don't really study VC. There's no degree studying venture capital in, in in college. So what was your quick backstory into sort of getting to this space
0: yeah, quick backstory was I thought I was going to go into the medical field. My whole family, um, you know, doctors, nurses, and so forth. So thought that was what I was going to do. Took a science class, took math, and thought, mm, nope, not for me. Um, switched to marketing, actually, while studying in college. Ultimately ended up in finance. But I think, you know, we talked about whether you should c- – do warm outreach or cold outreach when going to prospective LPs or investors. And I actually landed my first role in a VC um, through cold outreach. I was looking for a summer internship. I just switched my major from marketing to finance. I was like, what am I going to do? I need a summer internship. I need to actually experience this, um, you know, this field of study that I just opted into. And so I reached out cold still for a marketing community role at that Boston-based fund that I since grew alongside and joined as chief of staff upon graduation, but joined them for the summer that extended into the fall. I helped out, um, you know, with their portfolio companies. And it was primarily on the, you know, platform side, marketing community. It was what I knew is what I was comfortable with. But I remember there being these Monday meetings with the investment team members and the investment partners where they would go behind the door literally into a side office and talk about all the companies they were meeting that week. And, you know, maybe it was just me not wanting to be left out of a closed door, you know, interested in what they were talking about. But I was like, I need to get behind that door. And so I... You know looked for my next internship um, and actually ended up self developing an internship with that same firm to join their investment team and Then I was behind the door. I was a part of those conversations, you know learning about you know what companies they were looking at what why the, what questions they were asking, so forth and I had a lot of fun with that, so I was mostly doing sourcing and due diligence um you know and then I started approaching graduation and I thought you know well, what do I want to do? I know I really like VC. Do I want to stay on the investment side? Do I want to go back to platform? And uh, made it the best of both worlds by self-developing another role at the same firm as chief of staff. And so that was kind of what I shared earlier I was encompassing everything along the firm, um, but shadowing specifically one partner. So everything from his portfolio management to investor relations, to fundraising, to, you know, firm operations as a whole. And so that was my side door story into VC. I think ultimately what got me excited was, and got what got me excited to stay and continue wanting to learn more is that it is the best place to be if you're curious like if you want to know about something that you know nothing about and you want to learn it learn about it from one of the most passionate and smart people working in the space like you get to learn from someone every single day you're really going to be the smartest person in the room which I think is a good thing and you get to learn constantly and so I think that hungerness to learn and the curiosity to learn. If you have either of those two things, you might want to consider VC because it, it'll continuously feed your brain. And I'm very lucky to be, in, be where I am.
1: That's a great story. And you know, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the, the, the value of the sort of learning. And mm-hmm. I think the whole notion of VC is trying to learn from each other, also learning from the founders. Uh, but also learning about the future as well, because it is sort of figuring out how do you want to, you know, what's what's going to take off? What are these trends that you're seeing, right? And so no one has the precise answer yet, but it's all about putting um, the time and effort into trying to support the founders who want to become um, and who want to disrupt and, and change the world for the better. And then you're sort of helping them along that process. And I think that's really cool to hear. But I also get the sense that, you know, your path is effectively, you know, I, it's definitely something that you strive towards. And I think you were sort of, there was these opportunities around you. What about those people in sort of, you know, other parts of the world and, you know, those who are probably listening to this right now, and who want to sort of be more involved. They don't have to necessarily be part of that group that you just mentioned, but just be more involved um, and they're sort of up and coming in their career. and They don't really know what they want to do next. And, you know, they want to be in tech. They, they don't know if they want to be an operator or a VC or whatever it may be. What's sort of some advice that you can give to them about pursuing the path that they need to go? Yeah, that's a great question.
0: Um... I think my, my advice, simply put, would be to have as many coffee chats as possible with people in wildly different professions. Um, it is part of the soul searching that I did when I was early uh, early in my career and you know I'm still constantly doing. So there's no better way to learn about what someone's day to day is like or what a professional is like by asking the individual directly. So reach out cold via LinkedIn. Um, we can share templates. Um, about what's been helpful and what I've seen resonate well with people in the past. But I think, you know, spend some face to face time, whether in person or virtually, trying to understand why did this person choose the career? What do they like slash dislike about their current role? Where are they aspiring to get to and see what resonates with you? And then pull consistent themes about what you enjoy hearing from people and kind of build and construct well, this would be my ideal role. Where might this fit? And then continue having conversations with people um, to see, you know, what might most, uh, what might be your path.
1: Great advice. Um, I think everyone's path is different. Uh, I I know a few people right now who are looking down sort of the barrel of where they want to go and Mm -hmm. some of their current roles are not fulfilling. Uh, And I think, you know, if you, if the way it's how you perceive uh, what you're doing, but I think, you know if you look at venture capital you look at um investing but you also look at company building i think it's a trifecta of of things that can really help um build great companies and, and great products and services uh for for the world so i think there's a lot of i hope there's a lot of people out there who are sort of excited to get into this space because it is definitely something uh, worth considering especially if you're either up and coming or if you're an operator slash founder and you want to get into uh, VC or vice versa. I think, you know, there's always a lot of uh, flip ups uh, that mm-hmm. do happen. Um, and they, some people feel like they want to sort of transition from one, one wall to the other. So I do appreciate uh, the feedback there. Uh, let us just quickly finish this off with a, a few other sort of questions. And these are more sort of personal, just to learn a little bit, learn a little bit more about you um, as well. Um, mm-hmm. so What's a uh, What sort of books are you reading right now? Uh, You mentioned you're a keen learner and always uh, love to sort of learn about what's happening next. Um, Are you reading anything? Are you listening to any podcasts? Uh, What's what's on your in your radar at the moment?
0: Yeah, yeah. Rapid fire answer this question. There's two books that I'm currently reading. One is the Vanderbilt: The Rise and Fall of the American Dynasty by Anderson Cooper an amazing well-written story about the Vanderbilt family. And funny enough, I was just in Newport, Rhode Island, two days ago, touring the Breakers itself. So fascinating story, still reading it. Um, I always try to pair a nonfiction with a fiction as well to kind of escape the day-to-day world that we're living in. And it's called, the one I just finished, is called November 9th by Colleen Hoover. Great fiction story about two characters, you know, finding their unique paths and how they intertwine with one another. And then, favorite podcast of all time is All In. Um, it's with uh, David Sachs and the crew there. They call themselves the Besties. So every Friday they release an episode, and every Friday morning I'm listening while I, you know, do my morning routine. So those are my three favorite pieces of content right now.
1: That uh, you know, you try. Stri- are you sort of agnostic to um, you know reading and, and listening to content, or are you really honed in on you know? trying to you know learn more about history or learn about sort of uh, investing you know are, are there any themes that you look for when you look into new content and to read up on one
0: yeah it's a good question i'd say i go almost in monthly themes i get a lot of my content from uh, friends who recommend topics so the vanderbilt book was actually recommended by a friend and now it's prompting this like deep dive into our history um and so like next i have the uh autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt and so I'm gonna be reading into that. Nothing that I probably would have chosen myself, but from Vanderbilt to that, you know, I'm excited to make that transition. So it comes a lot from recommendations, which I think is the best way to kinda of get get what you're gonna read next.
1: Yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's good to be eclectic, um, into, in, in, in your sort of reading materials because you start to form sort of connections and connections that you never thought would be related to each other. But you realize how mm-hmm. oh, that kind of might make sense, <laughs> uh, especially d- between different themes. So definitely putting your absorbing as much as information as you can from different areas of the world and, and life is really cool. Uh, what about, sort of your routine, if you have any, I know I'm kind of strict and sort of regimented in the way mm-hmm. I live my, sort of my daily lives, but, you know, I'd love to sort of get a sense of how you sort of, you know, uh, get up in the morning, what do you do and and how do you sort of, uh, you know, become sort of, you know, the person that you want to be um, down the road?
0: Yeah, I think Yeah, I think it, I think it takes a lot of discipline and routines come into play with that. You know, we strive to be the person we want to be, how we show, and how we show up each and every day. Um, I wish I was one of those individuals who had a five to nine before the nine to five, but you know, I probably, I wake up, I hit snooze for like 10 minutes. That's pretty consistent. Try to dream a little bit more. Um, I always try to get some movement in the morning, whether that's, you know, running on the treadmill, getting for a walk outside, riding the Peloton. Um, I'm, always consistent with my breakfast it's pretty much the same thing eggs and chicken sausage I don't know if you want this much detail but that's the, that's the breakfast um, and then I try to journal for a little bit before I step into step in front of screens for the day so the morning's pretty much like no t- time for me I think you know in our respective careers we spend a lot of time in front of a screen whether it's talking with people doing research catching up on emails um, and so I think it's you know important to have some dedicated no screen time whether in the morning or evening.
1: What's mean? I've tried to get in journaling, uh, myself. It's hard, like, especially sitting down to write something, you know, what, what yeah. does journaling do for you?
0: It's funny. I had, it's funny. I had someone just ask me about this and they were like, are you a prompt journaler or do you just write whatever's on your mind? And so I think it's, you know, there's different types of journalists. I know some friends who journal, they ask themselves a question every day, and that's, you know, what prompts them to write about that question. And you can use various websites to get those questions. Um, I have so much going on in my head that I just write down what's on my head. And I use journaling almost as like a just like an, 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 uh, an outlet that's a best friend that doesn't necessarily respond. But it helps me become more and more self-aware because I'll actually reread journal entries and I'll see my individual self evolve, you know, day to day, month to month, consistent themes that I've been bringing up. And so it just helps me see myself almost from an outside lens. Um, and so, yeah, prompt journal or writing down whatever's in your head, but it is difficult to stick to at some So it's helpful to put into your routine.
1: Do you do, do it very quickly, like, like the five minutes, 10 minutes, do you set a time limit?
0: I I try to do it. Uh, I try to do it for at least five minutes. I usually do it while listening to like this uh, playlist that I have on my phone. But it depends, you know, how much is on my mind that day. Sometimes it's half a page, and sometimes I'm writing for like three pages, and I'm like, I only stop because my hand cramps up. Uh, but yeah, it depends on the day.
1: Nothing to it. I know drilling does help. It's just like the consistency part and
0: mm-hmm. the discipline.
1: Because sometimes you just you, you draw blanks, and you're like, what do I? All right right it, it's the morning i've got like other stuff going on but yeah. i do hear much like yourself from friends and colleagues and acquaintances that journaling if you do it enough just like meditation you know mm-hmm. it will you'll start to feel the difference you'll start to notice that there's definitely some sort of positive benefit to it so
0: yeah,
1: yeah maybe maybe you know that will be the trigger <laughs> for me to get back into it maybe um, i'll send you maybe um, i'll
0: send you i'll send you some good farms prompt questions after this, then you could be a prompt <laughs> journal for a little bit. Because the worst is bit. when you feel like you're looking at your journal, like someone you don't really want to talk to and then you're forced to talk to, you're forced to write. So I'll send you some questions. All
1: right, <laughs> sounds good. I'll, I definitely need accountability there. Finally, I think this is something that I've always been interested in is technology. Um, I'm very, very technology driven. Uh, and I, I love the advances that are happening right now, especially when it comes to AI Um, robotics machine learning and what have you so you know from not just four cities but your own personal mandate what do you what sort of technology and areas or sectors or industries that get you excited right now and why
0: yeah yeah Uh, good question I think you know personally I'm leaning more and more into the healthcare space um, specifically women's health and elderly care I think with for the latter with an continuously aging population and in many countries, the elderly population being greater, you know, how can we care for those who once cared for us in the best way possible? Um, You know, through sickness and through health, um, there are many tools out there that can be supportive to individuals. And I think, as I mentioned, I come from a healthcare background in my family, you know, having physicians in the family and understanding their day-to-day Uh, problems and limitations to be able to have them do the full work that they want to do, which is to care for their patients. You know, how can we use technology to let them give their best to people in need? And so, you know, that's been an area, um, that I've been looking more and more into and why I'm, you know, excited about it.
1: Cool. Yeah, definitely a lot of stuff happening in digital healthcare. It's definitely an industry that needs to be disrupted a little bit. Um, I think there's a lot of antiquated processes and a lot of antiquated systems in place. And I think the healthcare system, you know, I think Australia and and sort of you know those countries, it, it's improving. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's definitely a lot of uh, sort of it's ripe for innovation. There's a lot of stuff that can be done through technology, and it's really exciting to see. Uh, where that goes but uh, overall it was great to to speak with you Mia um, great conversation hopefully a lot of people uh, get insights um, from this today and and what all the links even including all the books that you're reading and, and podcasts you're listening to uh, in the description notes um, so that everyone can get access to it but on that thanks for uh, thanks for joining the podcast
0: yeah thanks for having me Baron. thanks for facilitating this for the group
1: Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you made it this far and like the content, please subscribe, like and share it with your family, friends, colleagues, co-workers and even your frenemies. You can find most of our episodes on all of your favorite podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Apple and YouTube. Thank you again for taking the time to listen and hopefully walking away learning something new. Goodbye for now and I'll see you next time.